This is the best, most fun I have ever, ever, ever had on a podcast. This is a hit. I'm Jesse Cole, your host of Business Done Differently, where we get to meet successful people who look at business differently and we get to know them in a different way. Today's guest is Mike Michalowicz. Mike's an author, speaker, and business owner who looks at the world differently. His books, Toilet Paper Entrepreneur, Pumpkin Plan, and Surge have made a huge impact on entrepreneurs worldwide. And now his book, Profit First, has taken the business world by storm. It's single-handedly changing the profit mindset as we know it. And it's because Mike's mission is simple. It's to eradicate entrepreneur poverty. Today, you'll hear why. On a personal level, you'll hear how Mike's overcome some amazing challenges and adversity in his life, from losing it all to serious depression. It's these challenges that have made Mike who he is today. And Mike's made an amazing impact on my life, and I know he will do the same for you. So here it is, Business Done Differently with Mike Michalowicz. All right, Mike, the first segment we're gonna do here is Breakfast Club. So I want you to go back to high school. What group were you a part of? Were you the athlete, the nerd, the outsider, one of the popular kids? And how has that impacted you today? I was the nerd athlete, ironically. Um, so Does that I, exist? I was, <laughs> yeah, so the nathlete, they call it the nathlete, <laughs> or the atherd. Um, and I, I just had the good grades and so forth. I hung out with the nerds, but over time, I played sports because I thought I had to, and then over time I actually became good at it. I think the big realization from the nerd days was I, I was the skinniest guy in school, and I could be pushed around easily. I found that there's a great way to avoid conflict or, or getting beaten up, and it's by being a jokester, uh, by, by using humor. And I found humor is a great way to disarm situations. So that became a powerful tool. The athletic size, I ultimately played sports in college too, the, the athletic size, side just gave me the, the competitive spirit and also the realization that even if you lose a game, uh, th there's always another game to play. That keeps me going. Outstanding. So, so the, the 13 people, Mike, who don't know your whole full story, you know, <laughs> what, what, is, what is your story and how have you come so successful with the books, the writing, everything? Can you share your story? Yeah, the quick story is I graduate college. I think I'm going to get one job at some large corporation for the rest of my life. And instead, the reality is I can't get a job. So I, I go back home. Uh, I get a local uh, part-time job at a computer store. And uh, working there for a while, I noticed the guy in the back room, uh, the owner of the business, sitting there, you know, chomping on a cigar, counting money. And I'm doing all the work. And that inspired me. I said, I, I don't want to be the guy doing the work. I want to be the guy in the back room. He does nothing except for count money. Like, that's the life I want. I'm going to start my own little computer business. So I did. Uh, I very quickly found out the guy in the back room was actually chomping on his fingernails, not his uh, cigar. I, 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 I realized the terror of running a business, the, the, the pressure that's on you, covering payroll, um, attracting new customers. But that fear... Now I'm a huge fan of fear. That fear was a tremendous motivator to keep going. And I believe anyone starts a business, embrace the fear. Uh, don't live in it because over time it brings about stress. But fear will wake you up at five in the morning and it'll have you working until five the next morning. 
So, so how, so how has the fear guided you? And you're because you had that first business, and then how did that yeah. fear guide you as you move through that? Well, it just, it just pushed me into doing things that I felt uncomfortable with, or even terrified of doing. You know, I started call calling people. I needed customers desperately. I was literally knocking on doors. I was walking down the street, knocking on doors, offering services, and it, it built up this kind of callousness, not not in a negative way, but like I was I was becoming immune to getting shot down. And I think that was important, powerful. And, and over time, I started getting a couple wins, a couple clients. This started to grow. It took uh, quite a few years, about five years, but then I hit that million-dollar mark. And I think it was around that time I fell in love with entrepreneurship. And then at that point, then you, you sold the business. Where, where did the story keep going from there? Yeah, so that business was in computer networks. Ultimately, it was, I sold it to uh, it's called private equity. Just seen some, some affluent guys decide to buy it uh, to do some stuff. I started another business the next day crime investigation. Uh, it was a, a, a dream vision job type of thing I had. I was watching CSI on TV one night. And I was like, wow, I'd love to do criminal investigations. And I already knew computers, so the two matched up, computer crime. And that business started it. Six months later after the start, Enron, the Enron trial broke. Mm-hmm. We got the call. And I was one of the companies in the, on the Enron trial, among other major cases. And my business, it was an overnight Success. Uh, I mean, it took three years, but after three years, I sold it to a Fortune 500. Wow. So then, so after that, now you know, Mike. I think the story of you is is fascinating because you know your life has changed and gone in so many different directions. And I, who've been able to know it, but you know, so after that, that's when really you had probably one of your biggest challenges, and that's kind of really brought you to where you are now. Can you share that with the group? Yeah. So where I am today is I'm an author. Uh, a full-time author. I mean, I do also own, own a couple of businesses, but my full-time endeavor is being an author. And the one part of the story, which is the is for me, was the darkest point to this, the darkest part to this point. Hopefully, will always be the darkest point, but I don't know what's coming. I uh, after I sold my second business, uh, became a self-made millionaire. I was in my thirties. You know, I, I thought I had everything figured out. Uh, my my bank account blew up. My ego really blew up. Uh, I started spending money because I thought I deserved trophies and stupid things. I thought um, that I should just start business after business because I know the formula. You build a business quickly and sell it. So I started 10 companies as an angel investor. I was, I now argue, the worst angel investor of all time. I call myself the, the angel of death. I, uh, I would start businesses and they, were just, they weren't complimentary. I had no clue what I was doing. This business just collapsed. I was wasting money. And while logically I saw my money dwindling, emotionally I didn't accept it. I, I thought that one big client would come, that one big moment would turn, everything would be fixed. And then the day came when actually I had no money left. That's when I had to admit that I had uh, had failed. I lost everything, and it was you know I had to confront my family and tell them what I had done. And, and, and how old were you, how old were you at this point, Mike? I was 35, 36. So you've had so much success, and at 35, and I'm staying on this story because it's, it's fascinating to me. How did you quickly turn it away, turn it around? It, was it just the self awareness and realization, or, or how did you turn it around to become who you are now? Yeah, so it, you know, it, it wasn't a quick turnaround. In retrospect, maybe it looks that way, but so by 35, I lost every penny I had. I um, I told my family that we were done. We we lost our house that we were living in, uh, we lost our cars. I mean, we, all of our possessions were going away. We moved into a rental, and um, I had to scrape and do anything to get by. Um, for the next two years, 
I went through with functional depression. It's the highest level of depression. You can still function, but it was absolute true depression. I started, I'm not really a drinker. Actually, I've stopped drinking. I'm just really not that into drinking. I, I enjoy a good margarita, but uh, I started really boozing hard at this phase, and I became an insomniac just watching TV. Uh, and it took me about two years of going through depression before I heard something from a friend of mine that was a game changer. Um, I, I always thought I should write these like success journals and, and to get out of depression that should cheer myself up and, and just highlight the little wins for the day. And he said, no, no. He goes, instead, start a, a journal, uh, effectively a diary. He goes, write everything that you feel in there, not the good stuff, not the bad stuff, whatever you feel. And, and let it out. So I started writing these angry thoughts in there uh, at myself, at the world around me. I felt just, I just let everything out. And I felt vindicated. It was interesting. Every time I, I just put this stuff in writing, I felt a sense of relief. And it allowed me to get my focus back. Because when I was in depression, all I focused was on the negative and to stay stuck there. I couldn't get out of it. When I started journaling about it, I felt enough relief to, to open my eyes to other opportunities and other things. And ironically, that journaling started to become books. I just started to write down problems and mistakes I was making in my business, my own ignorance, and said, oh my gosh, I should make this into a book. And that ultimately became my first book, which became my second book, and now I'm a full-time author. Now, how do you teach someone to start, like, is just, just start writing how you feel? Like, how do you get into that? Because I believe everything you should be writing every day. And how do you, yeah. how do you get someone to do it? It's like running a marathon. It's not really easy for someone to start. Yeah, yeah. Just grab a piece of paper, grab a book. I think the big thing is to devote a time to it. The moment you wake up or right before you go to bed, I mean, pick a designated time because the rest of the day will interfere with it. But then when it comes to writing, whatever you feel in the moment, even if the words are, I don't know what to write, write, I don't know what to write. And you'll see that will spark the next thing. Like, why am I writing to myself? This is so stupid. You know what else is stupid? The world's stupid or whatever. And it starts sparking something. Ever the the words are flowing through your head at the moment, get them out. Just let it naturally flow. Beautiful. So it was that it was that advice that helped you kind of start writing down things, start having you know realization. And then, you know, we've all heard it. it. You're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. I'm calling this segment the party of five. You know, you got that one advice from that one person. Did you start getting around a group that started getting you out of that depression to reach success? You know, how, what happened? I did. How did, I did that happen? So the party of five uh, is, is I'm in a business group. It's called EO, Entrepreneurs Organization. Uh, I've always been in it. Uh, since I started my businesses and, and got to the point where I qualified. Once I was going through this, at first I sheltered from them. And you know, it was interesting, the, the response uh, or the reaction to depression for many people, for me, it's the, removement, uh, the remove myself from society, remove myself from talking with other people. It's almost a shame. I don't want to put my burden on them, and I'm embarrassed about facing them. But that's, I reinserted myself actively in that group, and that was a big deal. So, so, so did you just did you just join? Like I'm looking for people. Like I always ask that question because it's you're surrounding yourself with different people and you usually like them. You know, did you just jump into and say I'm going to become a part of a better group? You know, what's a practical advice you would suggest for someone to improve their five, their party of five? Yeah, I mean, I had to insert myself. Now, I, I already knew had an experience with this group EO. I actually slowed down my participation, but I got reactivated and put myself in there. Um, the interesting thing I found from the entrepreneurial perspective is 
entrepreneurship is a very lonely business and your immediate friends won't get you. you know, the second you open your doors, everyone you know says, oh my God, you're a multimillionaire and you don't work at all. And the reality is you have no money and you work your ass off. <laughs> um, so what we need to do is, is find people who get it since other entrepreneurs. Now the key is they're also lonely too, just like we are. We feel like we're on this lone island. So I, I can go anywhere and just you know say, hey, I want to talk to the owner of such and such business. And that owner of the business is likely to share their story and start forming a bond. Now, EO is a structured group, so it already existed. The format was there, and that's where I put myself. But I've done these other things where I walk into a bar or something. I'm like, hey, I, is the owner here? I'd just love to learn more about this bar. And it's so easy to build a rapport, which you simply say, you know, I own a business too. I wanted to learn more about your stories. And uh, that's a great way to, for me, I found, to find other entrepreneurs. No, it's it's great. It's like curiosity. You know, I have a game I always call Curious George and what's what's curious about business. But I think it's just you have an innate curiosity. Can, can you teach that? Or how did you develop the curiosity? Not many people, Mike, are going to go into a bar and say, I'd like to talk to the owner and learn more. But there's a small group will. Is it just can you train that at all or teach that? I, you know, I think there's I think I think there's a couple of things that I figured out. I used to never do that. And I, the bar example, I literally did it about three weeks ago. Uh, and I had an awesome conversation with this guy. It was a, it was a microbrewery. And here's what I found is tomorrow, try to write down a list of things that you experienced, people you talked to in the conversation you had the day prior, and the day prior to that, and the day prior to that, the last three days. What I find is it's very hard to remember specific conversations. Well, all we remember is emotion. Oh, yeah. Um, that was, I had a good moment yesterday with such and such person, or I can't remember what I did. So a lot of the stuff that we experience is instantly forgotten. It's just the end of motion. So when I figured that out, I, I became emboldened that when I approach people, if I say, hey, I'm really curious about learning about you and you know how you build this facility, that ultimately at the end of the day, they're going to forget who I am. They're going to remember my name. It's all going to be in the wash. They may end up with an emotion like, oh, that's kind of interesting or weird that someone approached me. But that's about it. There's very little consequence. I, I do know if I don't do it, the consequence is extraordinary for me. Another day of, of nothingness, another day of, of boredom or, or no progress. So I've kind of become emboldened because no one really remembers. It, it all flushes out in the wash. But if I do do it, the impact for me is extraordinary. And if I don't, it's pretty, pretty weak. That, that makes sense, and it, but it leads to, I think, actually, a new section. I've got a whole new game for you, Mike. This is, this is called The Good Life, and I think it leads into the work-life balance, that, that mythical place of, of perfect work-life balance, and you're a person who's constantly seeking others out to ask questions, yet how are you balancing that? You know, you've got kids, a wife, you've, you're running Profit First Professional, you're speaking, you're writing, you have a podcast. How do you balance that, and have you found any answers to this good life or work-life balance? Yeah, I, I have not found a balance, um, <laughs> like in the, in the traditional sense, like you know, work thirty hours or forty hours a week <laughs> and then be home. Like I, I think that's mythical, but what I have found is an emotional balance. I do know there's a certain period where I, I've had enough, and and I got to call it quits there. I, I I used to push myself through it. My twenties. I say, ah, or even my 30s, I got to push through this. I, I can't work anymore. Just go, go, go. Anyway. And now when that when I'm cut off, I realize the work's going to be there tomorrow if I work on it today anyway. So when I feel the need to turn it off, I turn it off. How, how, do, you know, how do you know that? How, like, how do you get that feeling? 
it's an emotion. Like I'm like, ah, you know, often I start drifting. So I'm working on something and I start drifting a lot. Um, I'll give myself a quick break and see if I come back and get focused again. But if I keep drifting, I'm like, you know what, I'm done for the day. And what about, what about from a life standpoint, from a, a family? Is there a point where you, you – I mean, it's crazy because you think obviously work, work, work. But is there a point when you say, you know what? I'm going to go – I'm going to do my work now. I'm actually not going to spend time with family. It's just looking in an interesting way. Oh, yeah. I, I do that too. I'm like, I, like right now I'm in the middle of writing a book. I'm, I'm calling you from the offices of Pen, Penguin Random House. And this is go time. Like I, I'm working uh, you know, long days and weekends on this book. And so the, the, I have less family time. You know the challenge, of course, is is that my, I and I think most entrepreneurs are are so in love with work that the family gets compromised. And we don't even realize it. Uh, so my wife brings that balance there. She's like, Mike, you know, you're just not around right now. Um, sometimes she doesn't say it so pleasantly, and, and I get it, and I get it. She's right, and that's when I need to be present for my family. Um, so that that also, I think I have a spouse that's willing to be vocal, but also out of a out of a basis of love. Um, it's very important to bring that balance. Is it just an um, almost an understanding? Hey, you know, his life's going to be dedicated to a lot of work, and I'm okay with that. Do you almost need to find that independence collectively? Yeah, I mean, yeah, we, we've grown into it as a couple uh, and, and learning that that uh, she has, she, she's not a worker. She's not an entrepreneur. She doesn't get it. Um, <laughs> she she her work is family. And, um, and that's our super strength. So we complement each other that way. But we're also uh, collectively we're bringing a balance. But independently, if it was just me, I'd be working all the time. If it was just her, it'd be family all the time. So we're, we actively communicate. To she brings the balance of family, and I bring back the balance of pushing our you know our financial success forward and uh, and pursuing a vocation that brings us satisfaction. Because ultimately. My children, when they enter their workforce or do whatever they want, I want them to do what makes their heart sing, and I think I'm demonstrative of that for them. No, it's definitely. And you mentioned you own in all your strengths, and if she's amazing at being the mother and taking care of the family, let her do that, and you do the amazing entrepreneur. That, that makes sense, the departmentalizing to me. So that, that's outstanding. All right, we're going to go to our first game, Mike. We got deep there a little bit. Now we're going to go right into a game, which doesn't make, right. doesn't make a lot of sense. It's Business Jeopardy with your books, okay? It's the Mike Michalowicz <laughs> book Uh-oh. edition. Now, I'll probably fail. No, it's not okay. actually things from your books. It's just oh. so going off the titles. So your, oh, okay. Okay. Your, your first book, remember, Business Jeopardy, you have to answer as a question. So, yes. toilet paper entrepreneur, this is the average amount of toilet paper a person uses per day. Um, what is one quarter of a roll? I have no idea how many sheets that is, but we'll give you a correct answer because what I have is, fif- what is 57 sheets? So we will say... <laughs> What is 57 Sheets? Toilet Paper Entrepreneur Edition, Business Jeopardy. The next question from Pumpkin Plan, which I got to say was the first book I ever got introduced to you. Brilliant. Ah, All right. This state is the largest producer of pumpkins, and it's not even close. Um, What is Texas? Illinois. Illinois. Never would have thought that. Illinois. So if you're looking for those giant big pumpkins, you're going to Illinois these days. All right. Surge. What was the largest, or nope, this is the largest wave recorded in 1958 after tsunami off the coast of Alaska. How big was this wave? Oh, it was massive. It was probably approaching 100 feet. Nailed it. Uh, Mike, you nailed it. What is 100 feet? Oh, wow. All right. 
And now Profit First, which we're going to dive into. This is the most profitable company in the Fortune 500. Uh, Berkshire Hathaway. What is Berkshire Hathaway? What is Apple? Oh! Apple is unbelievably, the numbers are staggering the money Apple has they're holding. So that was the Business Jeopardy, Mike's book edition. I haven't gone into the question about clockwork. That might be on the next podcast, his new book coming out. But Mike, uh, let's go into the profit because I know the profit first really has uh, made a huge impact on so many people's lives. Um, I hear about it all the time from even people in our community saying, hey, I saw you in the profit first. I'm reading that book. It's amazing. Um, but first, I, I want to look at it in a different way. You are the host of the profit, which I think makes sense, Mike. There, Marcus Lemonis has done it long enough. You need to become the next host of the profit. Okay. What would you do differently as the host of the profit and what businesses would you invest in? All right, so, well, so here's the irony. I would not give them money. I think, you know, shame on the profit and Shark Tank and all these shows because what they're demonstrating is not the norm, but people are starting to believe it is. People are believing, oh, if I start a business, I'll find investors. You know, Marcus Lemos will come in and give me a big check. Or, uh, or you know, these Shark Tank investors will give me some money. The reality is 99.9% .9 of businesses never get an investment outside of the family and the founders, right? They just raise the money themselves. So I would go into the profit and say, you must find the profit within yourself. And that's my investment is giving them the knowledge and the mentorship, but not the money. You know, seeking someone else to save us is, is the fallacy of so many businesses, and I see it more now than ever. It's so, a shame. So, what would what would you what would you teach them? Well, innovation, frugality, uh, thinking, challenge the industry norms. You know, I, I think when we look at money, we look for the obvious answers. Oh, now I have money. Now let me run those ads on Facebook. Let me do these things. You're, you're my favorite example. That's why you're in the book. You know, these ticket machines. I'll never forget you telling me a story. You buy a ticket machine, that's a thirty or $50,000 investment, that system, plus they take 10% of every ticket sale or something. It's ridiculous. But when you don't have the money, you're the guy who said, oh, you know, let's get bananas stamped out of paper, and that there's your ticket. It's become a souvenir. There's actually one still hanging in my house. <laughs> um, and so that's, a, and that is innovation. That's frugality. That's a baseball team that can pack the stadiums every day versus the other ones that don't. So would you hope? Would, would, so would you hope, Mike? I'll cut you off. Would you hope like every business starts with like nothing? Like, do you hope every business goes to the point where they have nothing and they have to try to figure it out? Is that would you like actually advise? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there's better business that way because it forces you to figure out what works and what doesn't. When you do figure out what works, that's where you push into your business. But I, I wish more businesses face the challenges, and, and many do, I mean, listen, most of them do, don't have the money and have to figure out how to survive without money. The shame with those television shows is that we think that, oh, now I'm gonna devote my time trying to find money elsewhere, and it's a, it's a rarity. It does happen, but it's a rarity. I, I think you need to sh share quickly the framework of, of Profit First because it's such a brilliant philosophy and it's taking off. Can you share that framework? And then I wanna get into kind of how you work it within your own business. Yeah, so the, the basic framework is traditional accounting tells us that profit comes last. Sales minus expenses is profit. You must sell, you must incur expenses, and what's left over is profit. It, it is, the formula is totally flawed. Now, mathematically, logically, yeah, yeah, it makes sense. But when we are told something comes last, you know, profit's the, the year end, the bottom line, we are telling ourselves subconsciously it's insignificant. Like if I got sick, or you got sick, Jesse, today, and you came out of the hospital, 
says, you know, stop smoking, stop drinking. You don't come out of the hospital saying, starting today, I'm going to put my health last. You say, no, starting today, I'm going to put my health first. It's human nature. What comes first gets focused on. What comes last gets delayed and ultimately ignored. So the profit first formula is real simple. Sales minus profit equals expenses. And what I'm saying is every time you have a sale, immediately take a predetermined percentage of that revenue and tuck it away for profit. So pay yourself first principle apply to this. So why, why, why isn't everybody doing this? Well, why, why are businesses failing uh, or struggling with this? Yeah, because we, this is what we're told. I mean, every quote unquote, everyone knows that sales minus expense equals profit. Everyone knows profit is the bottom line. That's the exact words we use for it. Bottom, last, bottom feeder. You know, you want to be a top feeder, not a bottom feeder, but we're, we're, we're programmed this way. And so we believe that's how businesses need to operate. So what do we do? We focus on the top elements, sales and expenses. So most businesses say, I need to sell more, and they don't like to say I need to spend more, they like to say I need to grow more. Uh, so you use a soft term saying, I gotta put the money back in, I need to grow, so I can sell more, and I need to sell so I can grow more. And they stay stuck in growing a business to cover expenses, and every time sales increase, expenses grow at the same rate. So uh, it's because we've been programmed this way, and we buy into that line of crap. It's a total lie. So, so what's the biggest skepticism you get? You know, going into businesses, obviously they're used to bottom line, but what do people say, I can't do this? What are they saying, why can't they do it? The reason for the uh, skepticism, and, and when people hear the new system, I think is because they say, and I actually hear it all the time, they say, but Mike, I can't take my profit first. I haven't been profitable ever. So that they actually look at their history and say, it hasn't worked, so I have to wait until it works before I can try this new system. And what I tell people is, what have you? If it hasn't worked for the your company, what have you done historically? Have you taken your profit last? They're like, yeah. I'm like, well, then you've proven the old formula doesn't work. I'm telling you, you got to try a new formula. Okay. So people are so entrenched in their old ways, they think they have to somehow miraculously pull a profit first before they can use profit first. And my argument is, no, no, no. Start taking a profit first, and your business will automatically find where it can, it can actually spend the money and where it can't. And there. This is the pay-yourself-first principle by You know, I read in Firms of Endearment, the companies that talk about profit and money more than they talk about their employees and customers, their stock performance actually is dramatically lower than other companies. Now, that's a small study. So, I mean, you have your own business, Profit First Professional. Profit is everywhere. How do you talk about profit without the, the money becoming the whole focus? Or do you have the money and the whole focus and you're still successful? Yeah, so it isn't the whole focus, it's the first focus. You see, profit is the foundation for a healthy business. I can't stay in business unless I'm profitable. I can't service my clients if I'm not business, uh, profitable, and I can't sustain my business if I'm not profitable. So this isn't, it's not called profit only. The title is profit first. It's the first focus of a business because that's what brings about sustainability. And then you can do all these good things. And I believe, by the way, our businesses should be very impactful. I think we should be of service. I think we should be extremely conscious about how we're caring for our community, our environment, all of those things. But none of that can be done if, you're, if your business is starving to death and on the brink of death. You have to be fiscally healthy, act accordingly and appropriately, and, and care for the community around you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, if you're, you're losing money, you can't do anything. And so I, I completely agree with you. All right, Mike, I want to move into a right. quick. I want to move into a quick game: truth and dare. Just. Do it! You got that right. It's truth and dare. Yeah. Would you like to do a truth first or a dare? 
I'll do a dare. I like dares. All right. This is a game we play at the stadium. It's called Sing in the Blank, Mike. So I'm going to play the beginning of a song, and you got to finish those lyrics. You ready? Yep. All right. Go back to old school 80s for you. Sugar on me. <laughs> you want some more? Pour some sugar on me. Wow, uh, nailed it. I was worried. Yeah. I, I was worried with the pause, but you nailed that, Mike. All right. That will be the, <laughs> the first and last time we play Pour Some Sugar on Me on this podcast. <laughs> You'll never play that again. Yeah. <laughs> Outstanding. All right. From that ridiculousness now to a truth. What is what's the biggest fear you have right now in business? My biggest fear is that I don't have enough runway in my life to do what I need to do. So I feel called, I feel magnetized by the need to eradicate entrepreneurial poverty. I have to do this. I have to guide entrepreneurs to a profitable lifestyle. And I mean profit from the cash perspective, but I also mean it from time. I mean the reduction of stress, a healthy life. And I have to do this, and I don't know if I have enough time in my life to, to pull it off. But I'm, I'm trying. Oh, man, am I trying. Is there a way that you're finding to be able to make it easier, I guess, to do that? Yeah, well, the key is you know, books. I, I need to get all this stuff in books, and I need to get the books out there in a big way. Not nearly enough people know about Profit First. Not nearly enough people know about the, uh, the Pumpkin Plan and, uh, and my next book, Clockwork. I, all the answers I know are in there. I just have to get everyone aware of it, and it's got to serve them. Like, and I think my books do. Like, I haven't written a book saying like, oh, you know, if you read this book, the next step is you have to call me and hire me. Like, that's not my objective. If you read this book, it'll have a massive impact on your life and eradicate entrepreneurial poverty. That's what I'm trying to do. I just question if I can can get it all out there in a big enough way before before my time expires. Well, you're making an impressive impact, and everyone should check out the book Profit First. So we're going to move on to deets about the tweet. Mike, you have a strong Twitter game, a lot of retweeting, a lot of sharing, but some of your own content, which is outstanding as well. You write a lot. You wrote, successful people don't look for others' approval for their success, and therefore don't need to show it off. It sounds obvious, but how do you train that? Yeah, so you know, it's interesting. You can take the lesson from poker. I play poker with my buddies maybe once every couple months. And what I found is there's a, a truism of life in poker. And it's what it's just this. When someone starts bluffing, that means they have actually a weak hand, right? When someone has to kind of posture and look like they're, they got a big hand, they're trying to scare everyone else off the table through a bluff because their hand's actually weak. Conversely, when someone has a strong hand, they want everyone else to stay on the table. So what do they do? They just they play weak. They don't puff up the chest at all because they know they, they're winning. And I found this true in life. When people have a, a weak position in life, they feel obligated to puff things up, to show off their, their trophies and so forth, to, to fulfill something that's actually a void. But I found truly successful people don't have to puff up anything. They have that inner confidence. They, they already have won the game of life for themselves and therefore don't need to demonstrate their success. A classic is Warren Buffett. You know, the stories are out there. Warren Buffett um, lives in a modest house. Uh, he, his wife, you know, will give him $3 or $4 to go to the McDonald's to buy an Egg McMuffin for his breakfast. And, and that's the lifestyle he lives. <laughs> yeah. um, 
he's wildly successful, but he doesn't feel this compulsion to prove it because inside he's already proved it. That to me is what success is. It, it seems like an unbelievable amount of self-awareness, which you develop as you start to you know, have some success, you realize why you're successful, but it also, I think, goes down to questions. And, you know, this is a segment I like to call question time. Hmm. And, you know, I'm obsessed with questions, obsessed with them. And I'm starting to learn more about the best questions to learn the most, but what are the best questions you should ask yourself? Um, so I, I would always ask about my alignment. So I, I give you a little backstory to it, but the, 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 there's a concept called pivot out there. And um, I, I disagree with it even though it's very popular. Pivot says, you know, you've got to pay attention to what the customer wants, and if the customer's needs are not congruent with what you have, change what you have to meet what the customer wants. Now, here's the problem with that. I've seen, and I've experienced, changing my business to what the customer wants, but ignoring what I want need, and falling out of love with my business. You know, pivot means chase the money. And what I think we need to do as an additional step is alignment. We do have to deliver something that brings in revenue. So we do have to satisfy the customer. We do have to meet their needs, but without compromising our own. We need to align with what our heart calls out for us to do, our true uniqueness, and match that to what the customer wants. So anytime I do something, I say, is this congruent with my soul? Is this congruent with my values and delivering what my customers need? That's the biggest question I ask myself consistently. So you focus on yourself first before focusing on your customer? Right, exactly. Well, or it can go reverse too. When the customers need change, it's like, well, what does the customer need? I evaluate what they need, and they say, well, hold on, is this still true to who I am? Does this still satisfy me? And the answer has to be yes on both sides. Excellent. So, Mike, you're, you've been working with a lot of businesses. Obviously, the books, you got a lot of research from numerous businesses. What's a story about a, a business that was doing something extraordinary that we don't know about? I like to call this the hidden gem. Oh my God, so there are thousands of stories, right? So now I have to dig through and I, I can't think of one immediately. So I just want to think of something really racy. It's, oh, I got it, I got it. Here's the hidden gem. Uh, I was talking with the pizza shop and this pizza shop was struggling to get customers. It was a new pizza shop in town, struggling to get customers and they didn't know how to market it. And so here's what we did, the strategy they used. I am a big believer in do different. So they were trying to run the ads in the newspaper and it wasn't working. What we noticed is there was other pizza shops in town, and in particular there's one pretty established that had gone out of business over the years. Now the pizza shop still, there's other pizza shops, two of them, still had their signage up. And the more important thing, this is when yellow page ads were running, they still had the yellow page ads in, in the yellow page, because that lasts for a full year. Mm -hmm. Well, we called the numbers of the closed pizza shop and noticed that these two in particular uh, had disconnected their phones. So when you call pizza shop you know, one, you get disconnected phone number. When you call pizza shop two, you get disconnected phone number. What we did is we, we asked the phone company to redirect those phone lines to us. And so now, um, the, when you call any of those other pizza shops that were out of business, we would answer the phone. Literally within seconds, within seconds of redirecting the lines to us, these disconnected lines, our phone started ringing with pizza orders. And what we said is, hey, um, the pizza shop you're calling is out of business. We're the new pizza shop in town. We'll gladly serve pizza. And people are like, oh, that's great. And so we were getting pizza orders within seconds with a $5 phone redirection charge. That was it. One time, $5, redirect the phone line, and the phones were ringing off the hook. 
<laughs> so it, it's almost like looking for other businesses that are potentially failing that you can, I mean, it just, can anyone else put that into practical use? That sounds yeah. so brilliant. You know, what, what are the domains that are, are abandoned um, that are out there? You know, look up your, look up anyone who's a competitor of yours and see where they've advertised. Do they have online listings? You know, those listings of uh, that, that uh, chambers of commerce put up or whatever that list businesses uh, since they become a chamber member, I, I've literally found ads for businesses that have been out of business for five or six years. That's <laughs> that's gold. Wow. Redirect that stuff to you. Purchase the domain that's been abandoned and redirect it to your website. Purchase those phone numbers. Redirect them to your your phone number and watch the the phones ring and the website traffic skyrocket. Oh, that's fascinating. Well, Mike, I know you've also you know worked with a lot of uh, companies and you've seen a lot of customer service. I'm obsessed with customer service. So this segment I like to call now that's what I call service. Is there some customer service experience that you've had recently in your life that you were just blown away by? And I'm going to ask this question with a preface. It doesn't happen much. I, I go through all my life. There's not many restaurants that wow me or retail experiences that wow me. Have there been any that really have stood out for you and, and wowed you? Yeah, yeah. And believe, I, shockingly, it was on United Airlines because United <laughs> wow. Airlines is yeah they're notorious for if if you don't think they have bad service, they will beat you up until you believe they have bad service. That's the reputation they have. I was flying on United, uh, I, and I travel a lot, uh, so I got upgraded to first class on this flight. It happened to my wife, Krista, was traveling with me. Um, so when we're getting on the plane, I said, hey, why don't you take my first class ticket and sit front, I'll sit back in the economy. And she says, thanks, and she's fine. Well, she gets, she sits down in first class, I'm carrying her bag for her, and as I'm walking back toward economy, I slip her bag up in first class above her uh, chair. And the stewardess comes up and says, excuse me, sir, I'm really sorry, but you have to, if you're in economy, your luggage has to go with you. So I say, oh no, that's my wife's, that's where my wife has is carrying it for her. Well, she made a note of this in her head. I was sitting back in economy, my head against the toilet seat behind me type thing. And all of a sudden I start getting first class service back there. This, this uh, flight attendant serves me a, a, the meal from first class. I get the hot towel. They send, start sending me drinks back there. And they just said, hey, we just want you to know, you know, we don't see gentlemen carrying bags for their their spouses or anyone else that often, quite frankly, uh, that was very kind of you. We want to treat you first class. And so I, just, it, it was a human element. They noticed something that I did and they then went out of their way to, to acknowledge that. And to me, that's extraordinary service. And the beautiful thing is United, there was no training class at United to do that. They just felt, and maybe this is United the business, but I know it's the people, they, they felt, empowered enough that they could do something like that and they got joy out of doing that for me and I got joy out of receiving that. I thought that was extraordinary. It's brilliant and everyone, it's just about observing. People are so in their own worlds, they don't observe little things like that and then act on them and you're right, they're not empowered to do it. You know, right. It's, it's brilliant, Mike. All right, uh, moving on, I want to quickly go into love it or leave it. So I'm going to list something you're going to say whether you love it or leave it from a business, an entrepreneur. Uh, let's go with Bitcoin. Love it. Love it. All right, why? Because uh, I think it's you know anything that challenges established uh, norms. We, we just assume that traditional currency is the only currency. This is how things work, but it, it's a flawed system. Bitcoin is challenging. I'm not saying it's the replacement, but man, is it challenging traditional axioms? Great. All right, Walmart. Uh, I can leave it. I, 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 the damage it's doing to small business uh, is really hard for me to absorb because I love small business. But here's the thing. They're not doing anything illegal. They're out, out doing small business. 
I think a small business guy's got to turn up and say, you know what? Today's the day I take down Walmart. Mm-hmm. I, I look forward to that happening one day. Definitely. Amazon and let's go not just Amazon. Let's go Amazon's Alexa. Oh, so love it. Have it because I'm a music addict. You know, I, I've tried it for other things and it's a little uh, – it's not, it's not cooped up. Or it doesn't deliver to the level that I think it could. But for music, it's unbeatable. So I actually love the Alexa. Okay. LeVar Ball. I don't even know who that is. Is that a basketball player or something? No, that, yes, that's the guy that's been uh, fighting with Trump, the guy that uh, literally has the three basketball sons. He has his own show on TV. Oh, yes, yes yeah, yeah. I read, I read it quick. So this, this, this is interesting. I point to the fact that I don't read news at all. Um, I just heard about this recently, that the father stood to Trump. Go for it, LeVar. I, I am all in with you. <laughs> okay. All right, two more. Tesla. Love it. Well, and, you know, innovation, I, again, I don't know if Tesla is the one who's going to be in the map and, and it's going to put all the cars, the electric cars of the future or self-driving cars out there in the future, but they're the ones who finally laid down the law and said, you know what, we've had enough of the old paradigm, here's something new. I just saw a video of them with their new uh, long-haul trucks, unbelievably innovative. It's brilliant. Uh, yeah, yeah, brilliant. Yeah, excellent. And last one, love it or leave it, uh, eSports, the professional video gaming that's starting to take off. <laughs> I, is there another category? Don't get it. Like I, just, I yeah. But you know what? I, I love it for the people who love it. I, I don't get it. But listen, th- this is the future, and uh, I embrace it, even though I don't understand it whatsoever. Excellent. All right, we'll finish our last two seconds. This is another game called Flip the Script. Mike, you become the host of Business Done Differently, and you can ask me any question. All right. Um, so, what is the most embarrassing thing? you've ever experienced uh, at, at Savannah Bananas. <laughs> it happened last year. We were shooting the Bull Durham scene. In the middle of the game, we stopped the game, had our videographer go out to the mound, and had our players come in and do a full scene, acting out. It said, hey, what's going on out here? And it's, uh, well, no one knows to go to Elliot's birthday party. We filmed the whole scene talking about ridiculous things, yet our videographer ran out. We told the umpires, but the guys kept getting the scene wrong. The, the coach kept messing up his lines. The first baseman had to run in, run back in, run in. And there's 4,000 fans sitting, watching, wondering what's going on. At this point, I'm on the field. I'm like in the dugout and hiding. I'm in like the field position in the corner. Oh, I'm like, my God. This is going on for three minutes. And the fans are starting to boo now because they don't know what's going on because we're just trying to get this movie scene done. That was the most awkward, uncomfortable three minutes. But the scene turned out amazing eventually. So it was all worth it. Oh, oh my God! You have four thousand people on the hook, though. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, I, I guess I played a joke in the four thousand to think about the greater impact on the video. But I had a bunch of people come up to me. What were you guys doing that promotion? We had no clue what was happening. I go, yeah, either did I, really. So, all right, that was that was a great question, Mike. We are going to finish uh, with the last two things here. Uh, magic moment. This magic moment. What's one moment you will never forget? Um, I, I guess there's so many, right? So right now I'm sitting at, at Penguin's offices. Uh, I, I'll never forget walking into Penguin. This is uh, about two months ago, three months ago, and negotiating the biggest uh, book deal I've ever negotiated without an agent. It's so atypical. I just came in and negotiated myself, and so kind of knocked them back a little bit. Every author has an agent. Well, at least until now. I'm, I'm the fir- I think one of the first ever to go without an agent. So I'll never forget kind of their reaction, and uh, everyone came out smiling out of that arrangement, so it was great. And a question, do you still think about also the, the, the time, I've heard the story about with your daughter and the piggy bank? Oh my God, I'll never forget that, yeah. So 
that was the day I, I had to share with my family that I lost everything. I was a total effing idiot with money. And my daughter, in that moment, she ran out of the room. I thought she was running away, but she actually ran to her bedroom, grabbed her piggy bank, came back down, put it in front of me, said, Daddy, I'll support our family. And uh, it's, uh, it was a very emotional moment. Um, if I think about it a lot, I will start getting upset and crying. So I'm not going to think much about it much right now. But that moment was a life changer for me. I, I, I was humbled by my daughter. I'm so proud of her and my family and the support they, and belief they had in me, even though I was the guy who just was a total idiot with money. Well, totally. That says so much about your family. All right, Mike, we're going to finish up with some favorites in the final four. So favorites. Oh, boy. A favorite restaurant that you have. Uh, Bond, it's called Bond 45, which ironically used to be on 45th Street, but now it's on 46th Street in New York. So now it's Bond 45 on 46th. All right. The favorite gift, something that you've received recently? Uh, I, I got for myself electric guitar, uh, Yamaha. Um, I love jamming out. So. All right. Favorite song to rock out to or to jam out to? Pour some sugar on me. <laughs> you couldn't tell by the singing, Mike, but I'll, I'll, I'll go with that one. All right. Uh, favorite podcast uh, that you listen to, that you go to? Uh, I love uh, Mike Rose. Uh, uh, oh, gosh. I can't remember the name of the thing. He does these eight-minute segments um, uh, about these really wild stories. So it's Mike Rowe, the Dirty Jobs guy, who has this eight-minute show, but I can't remember the name off the top of my head. I'm a subscriber. Okay, beautiful. And is there a favorite TV show you have? Uh, I watch no TV except for football uh, and sports. So honestly, the only TV show is, is a good college football game. I'll never miss one. And who's your favorite football team? Uh, Virginia Tech, hands down. Virginia Tech, excellent. All right, Mike, now to the final four. What's something you've done differently in your life to stand out? Um, well, <laughs> everything. I mean, just go look at my website. I, I, I do everything that, that is against the norm because I know when you stand out, you get attention. And while attention doesn't guarantee you business, it guarantees you the opportunity to present what you have to offer. So just my website, I think, is a great example of ways to stand out. Excellent. We'll have that in the show notes. And what makes someone stand out? What's the easiest way that someone can stand out in business and in life? Oh, Oscar Wilde said it. Be yourself. Everyone else is already taken. Meaning just really be true to your intrinsic self, and that's what will make you stand out. And now the final two. The best advice you've ever received? Uh, oh, best advice probably was from my mentor. His name is uh, Frank Mantola. And he said, don't listen to me, and then started sharing what he wanted to share. Now, I got to put the little preface in front of it. I was looking to uh, serve a community uh, through my uh, – I was going to introduce a product for one of my businesses. And I said, uh, Frank, I don't know if it's a good idea or not. What, what do you think? He said, I'll tell you, but don't listen to a word I'm saying. He then told me, and he said, the reason I don't want you to listen to me is I have my own inherent biases. And you have to listen to your customer, not to an expert. Experts will guide you the wrong way. That was the big aha for me. But you still listen to him to learn. That, that just seems kind of contrasting. Yeah, it does. Well, he, he told me what he believed around the product I was considering, okay. what I should do. So I listened to it. But I realize ultimately the answer is with the customer out of him. Okay, excellent. And finally, Mike, how do you want to be remembered? Uh, for eradicating entrepreneurial poverty. Like, that is my life's mission. I, right now, 80% plus of businesses on this globe are surviving check by check. There's a constant panic. But by the day I die, I want 80% of businesses in this globe to be profitable. That, that's what I want to be remembered. 
Mike, you have won the Business Done Differently show today. And I'll tell you one thing about you, Mike, is you are an unbelievable connector. You're an unbelievable teacher. And what you've been able to do to help people is really, it, it's staggering. And I think that's one of the reasons thank why you're so successful. And I can't thank you enough for being on the show and for all your help with everything. And, uh, you know, how can people learn more and connect from you? Guys, his books we'll put in the show notes. They're amazing, every single one of them. But how else, Mike? Uh, my website's called MikeMichalowitz.com. Here, talk about being different. Uh, you can't find that. It's so long. It's so Polish. It's scary. But here's how you stand out. Go to MikeMotorbike.com. That was my nickname in high school, Mike Motorbike. The irony is I never rode a motorbike. But go to MikeMotorbike.com. That'll bring you to my site. You have all my resources there. So just like you said, you actually bought Mike Motorbike so you could have that to send people to. Yeah, because that was, that was what people called me. So <laughs> there it is. Outstanding. Mike, thanks a lot, man. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Jesse. Today, we learned even more about how to think differently. Sometimes in life, professional is boring and weird wins. So thanks for listening. And remember, the world needs more people being different. So whatever's normal, do the exact opposite. Be different, stand out, have fun, and enjoy the show. Until next time, stop standing still, start standing out.